Well, good morning. I want to echo uh, John's sentiments from his prayer. I, I genuinely love our times of gathering together. And again, I just want to say, if you are seated in the back regularly, you are missing out on hearing everyone behind you sing. It is, it is immensely encouraging. And so, uh, yeah, I am hopeful for how the Lord will see fit to use our service even today to grow our, our love for Him and uh, to grow our knowledge of His love for us. I would invite you to open to Galatians 4 if you're not there. The central part of our service each week is we gather around the Word of God. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would love to give you one on your way out. Uh, and there is no shame in that. On your way out, um, we have an information table. We would love for you to stop by we, and just say, what is central to the life of this church week in and week out, we pray would be central to your day. And so uh, it would be our joy to give you one of those. And when, and when we come to the Word of God each week during our gatherings, uh, most of our time we're just simply walking through books of the Bible, beginning at verse 1 and going all the way until the end. And the hope as we walk through that is we are hoping to see that the point of the passage that we're reading in its, uh, in its original context to its original audience would be then the point of the sermon for us today. And so we want to understand rightly what did the author mean when he wrote it, so then how do we rightly apply it today? And so as we've walked throughout this letter of Galatians, we've seen this is Paul's response to the news that he has received about these Galatian churches in light of the false teaching that they were beginning to believe and to follow. And if we're not careful, maybe we sit through this sermon series and we think, what is wrong with these people? Right? Anybody would be able to show up and to be able to spot when someone stands up and preaches something that's not true. That should be easy. Paul shouldn't have to labor for this. But it would be good for us to remember that it wasn't long, wasn't long ago before these Galatians would have received this letter that they were worshiping false gods. And these false teachers who had shown up they were from Jerusalem. They had spent their life devoted to the law. They had very convincing arguments. These Galatian believers perhaps felt like maybe some of you feel this morning. Uh, if it comes down to it, I just don't know if I could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with someone defending my faith. Some commentators believe our text today is Paul's response to one of these lines of arguments that these false teachers would have employed to these Galatian believers. And so let's just imagine what their argument might have been to these Galatian Christians. False teachers show up, and they begin to say things like, in the first book of the law, we read that Abraham had two sons. But only one of them that came through Sarah received the inheritance. In fact, Sarah would even say, Genesis 21.10, that 
Abraham should cast out the slave woman and her son because only Isaac is going to be the heir. And if you know the story, God did exactly as she said. That the son of promise would not be Ishmael, but it would be Isaac. Even though you aren't, uh, I, I can imagine the, the argument would have been, so Galatians, even though you aren't physically a descendant of Abraham, if you will identify yourself with Abraham, then you can know the blessing that's promised to Abraham. If you will just bear this mark of circumcision, if you will just observe the festivals in the religious days, if you will just obey the law, if you do those things, then you will identify with Abraham and the promise that comes through the lineage of his son Isaac. I can imagine these false teachers seeking to convince these Galatians that this is for their good. They may even have said what Paul said was good, it just wasn't enough. And so maybe once we stop and consider the line of reasoning, the background of these Galatian believers, perhaps we can better appreciate then the difficulty of their predicament. But I also think we can better appreciate the burden that Paul felt for these whom he loved. And I believe this is why Paul has spent so much of his time in this letter providing detailed arguments showing that man Woman, no one is made right with God based on their works. You can't work your way into that lineage. No, it only comes through faith in Jesus. And that kind of backdrop prepares us then for Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. What many commentators would say is the most difficult section of the whole letter. But in the difficulty lies opportunity because God desires for us to benefit from all of his word. And I believe if we rightly see the word and understand the word this morning, there are, there are many treasures that are meant to be mined out. And so with eager expectation, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we approach his word. Our holy God, we come to you and we ask that you would give us illumination. Would you make clear that which is confusing? Would you bring to light that which is in the dark? And would you give us faith and a willingness to put aside our, our works? Would you do it for our good? Would you do it for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning, I think, naturally divides itself into three sections that I trust will help us as we seek to become convinced of this truth that Paul is proclaiming. And those three sections will serve as our points for the sermon. First section is we see the story. We see the story. Listen before he gets to the story, listen to how Paul continues in verse 21. The word of the Lord says this, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? 
And so before Paul hits the story, he sets up the story with this rhetorical question that's meant to bring clarity. In their appeal to the scriptures, these false teachers were not looking at the whole picture. And in fact, Paul urges these Galatian believers that know the big picture. Know the, know the logical conclusions to all of the arguments that these false teachers are making. Because if they are wanting to put themselves back under the law, then what they're wanting is to put themselves back into slavery. In fact, he says, before you go back under the bondage of the law, listen to what it says. And had they listened to what the law said, they would have known that it was a fatal mistake to think that you could find freedom under the law. You can't. And if you're here this morning and you think, my life is a wreck, I just need to do, you can't find freedom under your works. You need something a lot more solid and secure. Law here in this verse has really two meanings. The, the first meaning, you who want to be under the law, refers back to Mount Sinai where the Lord gave his people the Ten Commandments. So he says, those of you who want to be under the law, seeking to do that which God has said, do you not listen to the law? Do you not listen to the second use of the law there would be the scriptures. Do not listen to the, the, the scope and the voice of all of the law. It's as if Paul is saying, Galatians, simply being shown a Bible verse or two out of context can be misleading. So Paul then explores what the law says. And he does it by illustrating an Old Testament story. Listen to his summary in verses 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one, bound, or one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman according, or, or through the promise. And so what we're told is that Abraham had two sons, and the focus of these sons is the status of their mothers. One was a slave, one was a bondwoman, and the other was a free woman. And Paul doesn't quote anything here. In fact, he summarizes, if you were to flip over to Genesis chapter 15, and you were to read 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, you may need a little bit of, a time, a little bit of time, but this is, this is the account that Paul is drawing from here in Galatians 4, Genesis 15 through 21. God promised Abraham that he would have a son. And that sounds kind of normal, pretty believable, until we remember that Abraham and Sarah were quite old, well beyond childbearing years. So much so that their initial reaction upon getting this news was that they would laugh. They would laugh in disbelief, and yet we see Abraham quickly believing. And because of the belief, Genesis 15, chapter 6 then the laughter would be not of disbelief, but laughters of joy in the days ahead. As time goes on, Abraham and Sarah begin to wonder if they shouldn't help God. I mean, God has made a promise to us that he's going to give us a child, and the days turned into months, which turned into years, 
And as they continue to wait, Sarah and Abraham begin to scheme to say, should we not help God out in bringing his promise to bear? And so their plan was for Abraham to take one of the slaves, the bondwomen of the family, to take Hagar as his wife and to attempt to conceive a child with her. And so this happens. And Hagar gives birth to a son. They name him Ishmael. And best that we can tell, it seems that their plan has worked, that God has come through with his promise that he's going to give this old barren couple a child. Abraham then asks God to bring the blessing through his son Ishmael, and then God says no. God says no. I'm not going to bring the blessing through this son. God says that when he spoke of a son that would be born, he would be born through this promise. He was speaking that there would, one, there would be one who would come from them that would not be the result of them. It would be owing to his promise, owing to God's work. And so 14 years later, Abraham is 100. Miraculously, God's blessing would flow and would visit this older couple, and give them a child, Isaac. And God made clear, it would be through Isaac that my blessing would flow, not through Ishmael. And our passage this morning even tells us some of the differences. The one who was born of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. According to the flesh there can, can mean this attempt to rely on human effort, human strategy, natural means. But the one who was born of the free woman, he was born of, through the promise. Meaning it was owing only to the work of God and his promise and his power to bring this about. And so Paul uses this illustration and the differences that are, that are before us, they're stark. And, and it's meant to help these Galatians understand that there's nothing that they can do in order to belong to God and to be free. In fact, whenever you seek to take matters into your own hands and do your works, it only leads to slavery. That's the story. It's this ugly account of polygamy and adultery, which I just want to be clear, the Bible condemns this. The Bible opposes this, and so should we. And this story is ugly, and it's filled with brokenness. And there's disaster in its wake. This is not one of the go-and-do-likewise stories of the Bible. Rather, it's a story of what happens when we take the initiative to seek to help God bring about His promises. It's a story about one man, Abraham, one promise, many sons, in two very different ways of going about trying to secure that. Two sons, two women, and two ways of relating to God. One is by securing salvation on our own terms, by our own efforts, 
and the other relies solely on God's free grace, driving his unstoppable power according to his good initiative. And that leads us to our second section. The second section is the meaning of the story. The meaning of the story. Listen again to the word of the Lord in verse 24 through 27. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than, the one, than of the one who has a husband. And so perhaps you're just listening to me read this and go, <laughs> you're going, I, I can see why commentators would say this is one of the more difficult sections of the letter. But before we dive into what, he's, what the meaning of this story is, I just want to up front address this opening phrase, this is allegorically speaking. Paul is not seeking to give us the meaning of this historical account based on what Moses wrote. He's not seeking to give us the meaning of this story as the original audience would have understood it. No, what he's seeking to do is using a story, a historical, real story, and to pull out what that story illustrates. And so he's not saying that that was an allegorical situation back in Genesis 16 through 21, that it wasn't a real event that happened. It was all sort of imaginary make-believe to make this point. No, he takes a real historical event and he pulls out these truths. He illustrates from this story the truth that he's trying to make. In his explanation of the meaning of the story, Paul gives us the key that's going to unlock the meaning of the story. Uh, two mothers, two sons, and two cities. Uh, the mothers here illustrate the covenants. That's what verse 24 tells us. Hagar represents the covenant God made with his people at Mount Sinai. Again, that's where God would give his people the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting is that Paul understands Mount Sinai to be the place where they were locked in bondage to the law. They were put under bondage. But God's people would view Sinai as the place that was a celebration of their freedom. As the Lord led them out of Egypt, they would then gather at Sinai, and they gathered to celebrate this place because they saw themselves as free. But what they failed to realize is the the giving of the law. You will be blessed if you do this. You will be cursed if you don't do this. That really created a bondage for them because of their inability to keep the law. And so again, we're just reminded even of God's purpose for the law all along. The law was never given to us to be a ladder that we could accomplish and work so that we could make our way to God. It was rather given as a mirror to show us just how far off we really are from God. 
The law shows us the need for a Savior, but the law cannot be the Savior. The law shows us the bondage to our sin, but the law cannot release us from that bondage. And so, as Paul writes, the law then bears children for slavery. And so, Hagar and Ishmael, that's what they represent. They represent not trusting in God and his promises, but seeking to add your works to be made right with God. And he also mentions two cities. He mentions uh, the present Jerusalem. And this, this is loaded with meaning because at the time, Jerusalem was under Roman rule. They, they viewed themselves as uh, very oppressed. Or perhaps this is even thinking, this, these are where these false teachers have come from. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the centerpiece for this kind of religion that sought to enslave people by getting them to, to earn their right standing with God by their works, by their observances, by their regulations. And so in Paul's mind, the connection is clear. Just as the, the law covenant that was given at Mount Sinai says, do this and live, fail to do this perfectly, and you will be cursed, so too. The law then is only powerful to enslave those that are under it. And Hagar, Hagar has this offspring, and therefore her children are enslaved. And just as those who are under the law are destined only to be slaves, so those who come from Hagar are destined only to be slaves. There's no works that we can do to make us right with God. In fact, it only makes us slaves to a law that we cannot keep. Contrasted to Hagar and Ishmael and the law in present Jerusalem, verse 26, we learn about Sarah and Isaac and a promise in the Jerusalem above. And that's really, it's, it's really two paths that Paul is uh, putting forth to these Galatian believers. Are you going to go the way of Hagar or Sarah? Are you going to go the way of Ishmael or Isaac? I mean, think, think of two buckets. All of these things are in one bucket or the other. Hagar, uh, Hagar Ishmael, the law, present Jerusalem. Are you going to go Sarah, Isaac, the promise, and Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem? The author of Hebrews talks about this heavenly Jerusalem that is to come, Hebrews 13, 14. John writes in Revelation 21, verse 2, this new Jerusalem that's coming down. The point that he's trying to make, the difference that he's trying to show is the difference between slavery and freedom. And let's just be clear. When we talk about contrasting Hagar and Sarah, Sarah isn't the point. It was Sarah's idea to maybe we don't, maybe we shouldn't keep trusting God. Maybe we should take matters into our, our own hand. It was, she was a part of the sinful planning. But the path, the path that she represents is because of her son, Isaac. She represents the freedom from slavery that comes from receiving everything by faith. 
when you have nothing to give. Sarah did nothing to bring about Isaac. God literally did everything. And so these false teachers pull up into Galatia saying, make Abraham your father. Let's make Abraham your father. And Paul contends that it's not enough to show up and to claim Abraham is your father. The real question is, who's your mother? Is it Hagar or is it Sarah? And every one of them who heard this letter being read and every one of us who hear these sermons being preached will find our spiritual mother in one of these two. And it's illustrative. It's, it's, it's an illustration saying, which path are you going to take in order to find right standing with God? Will it be one that trusts in God alone? Or will it be one that says, I've got to add some level of my works? Do we try to earn from God or do we take matters into our own hands? It's the difference between the bondage of the old covenant and the freedom of the new covenant. And before Paul gets to this last section of the letter, he quotes Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. We see this in verse 27. He quotes Isaiah 54, 1 as support for this contrast that he's trying to make. And if we were to go back and look at Isaiah chapter 51 and understand the context, it would, it would serve us well to remember that Israel has been led into exile. They are under the oppression of Babylon. And if we were just to read through Isaiah, when you get to 54, what you find is that there is little to no hope that God's people are ever going to be God's people again. Little to no hope. Isaiah 54 even pictures Jerusalem as this mother who is weeping because she no longer has children. All of her children have been taken away. And she's barren. There's no hope for her to have any more children. And it's in the midst of this hopeless, seemingly impossible situation that the word of the Lord comes to God's people. And what does verse 27 say? Rejoice. Barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For there's a promise to you that will be more numerous than those who are married and able to bear children. seems pretty odd. But in this command to rejoice, God is also making a promise to his people. And the promise is that in the face of the impossible, in the face of the hopeless, in the face of the most unlikely, that this barren one will indeed have children. It's the same promise that Sarah experienced. Just as it was impossible for Sarah to have a son, and yet she did because God promised it and he did it, so God is also promising in Isaiah 54 
to bring about children again, to bring about an offspring to Abraham. And he's doing it in a situation where there seems to be no hope. He's promising to do it. And then what do we see? The scriptures, if we just keep reading the Bible, the Bible is just unfolding with story after story of God's faithfulness to keep his promise and to add to the number of his people. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, the good news is that you are in that number. You are part of the fulfillment of Isaiah 54. And let's be clear about it. It has nothing to do with you or me. It has everything to do with God. Isaiah 54 is a reminder that there's only one way for Jerusalem ever to be restored and to ever have hope. And that's not through their obedience to the law. It's not according to the flesh. But it's the same path that Sarah had to travel. It's the one, it's this promise that came to the prophets that, were, that was opened up through the sinless life, the substitutionary death, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus for any and all who would trust in him alone. It's God's power to act on God's initiative driven by God's grace. That's what we see. This is the only way that God's people are going to be restored. It's a unilateral intervention, the same way that Sarah conceived Isaac. John Stott puts it this way, in the place of the old covenant and its commands comes the new covenant and its promises. The old covenant at Sinai comes with commands of thou shalt, thou shalt not. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. And yet the new covenant that's promised through Jeremiah, it comes with I will, I will, I will, I will. This is such a surprising argument driving home this point that I pray that each one of us in here, I pray that we familiarize ourselves with it. The freedom of the gospel comes only as a gift and never as an achievement. Being made right with God comes only as a gift and never as a result of your works. The, the message of this unusual story and the meaning of it, it's the same message that this letter has been making over and over again. And Paul is saying, what is yours to do, Galatians, is not to work, but to believe. Covenant life, what is yours to do, is not to work, but to believe. Those in here that are not Christians, what is yours is not to work, but to believe. And so the false teachers have read the law all wrong. The scriptures never intended to make individuals children of Abraham as they obeyed the law and identified with the Jews. That way of thinking puts you under the lineage of Hagar, a view that says we can only bring about God's blessing by our abilities. And if you go that route, just know that you are going the route of sin and slavery and condemnation. 
but rather God's intention was to bless his people who saw that they had no hope. They were as hopeless as a barren woman in older age having any children. And if we confess that inability and we place our faith in Christ who accomplished for us what we could not do for ourselves, then we, like Isaac, are children of promise. And if you are a child of promise, you have nothing in yourself to boast about. It's owing all to the gracious God who took all the initiative. And so Paul wants these Galatians to see that they're not outsiders looking in. The false teachers had, had come and had presented arguments that would have made them think, ah, somehow we're missing it. We're outside looking in at all of the good that's happening. And Paul says, no, 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 no. If you have turned from your sin and you've placed your faith and your trust in the work of Jesus alone, and that is your only hope of being restored back again to God, then you are not strangers. You're not needing to get in line as to the next thing that's happening like it's going down in Jerusalem. No, Paul says, in fact, you've rightly understood God's purposes and plans better than the false teachers who reside in Jerusalem. And you, Galatian believers, you have been blessed because you've turned from your works and the slavery that that creates and you are now free by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's the meaning of the story. Brings us to our last section, the application of the story. The application of the story. Listen again to verses 28 through 31. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. This is kind of the crescendo moment for Paul in bringing this theological argument, this case that he's been making for the last two chapters. I would just encourage you to come back in the upcoming weeks as we give our attention to the last two chapters in this letter, which essentially say, based on all of the theological foundation that, that I've just presented, now this is how you live. And so allow that truth to inform how you live. Live as children who are truly free. But we're not there yet. Verse 28. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. At this point, as Paul is focusing and kind of narrowing in on these Galatian believers, it would be good for you and I to identify which camp we're in. I mean, have we identified ourselves with trusting wholeheartedly 
in God's promise. If I'm ever going to be made right with God, if there's ever going to be a solution to the problem of sin that I have, that I can't erase on my own, then I have to turn from my sin and I have to trust in God's work alone. And perhaps you're here and you're going, I thought that it was a little bit of belief and a little bit of works meant that I was going to be a little bit okay. I just want you to know on the authority of God's word, which is truth, that second belief leads you to a life of bondage. And the freedom and the hope that you're looking for, it can't be found there. It won't be found there. And so which camp are you in? And I want to speak first to those of us that are followers of Jesus, who've turned from our sin, who trust in God's work that he's graciously given through his son, Jesus Christ. You need to hear this the way that these Galatian believers heard this. Christians, you are children of promise. You're children of promise. Feel this. Being a Christian is not signing up for a club for those who are spiritually inclined. No, that is not what this is. It is a supernatural reality where the living God of the universe looks down across the scope of time and humanity, sends his son, who then goes forth, does a work that these people can't do. He ascends. He then sends his spirit into the hearts of these rebellious image bearers who were unable to come to him because of their sin. He removes those hearts of stone. He replaces them with hearts of flesh, and he adopts them as, their, as his children. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a child of promise. And just as Abraham was called to trust God's promises, so too are you. Christianity is not fundamentally about what you can do. Paul is just pleading with us, get off of the treadmill of performance. Stop wearing yourself out. You have been given what you can't earn. And because of his secure hands, you have been given what you can't lose. These realities are our realities. And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I just want you to know the message today is not it's terrible to be you. No, the message today is why in the world would you not run to the only place where this kind of freedom is found? He continues in verse 29. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. This is referencing Genesis 21, verse 9. There's this place where Sarah looks and Sarah sees Ishmael mocking. There's debate over how intense the mocking was, what the mocking meant. But there's this moment where Sarah sees Ishmael kind of mocking this one who 
is the rightful heir of all of God's blessing. And that leads her then, it's quoted here in verse 30, Sarah saying, cast out the child of the bondwoman. Do away with her. I think the lesson for us in verse 29 is that if you are a child of promise, you should expect a level of resistance from those that are trusting in their works and in themselves. And so children of promise, genuine Christians this morning, don't be surprised if others ignore you or dismiss you or hate you because you are in Christ by grace through faith. You will be opposed if you claim this promise. And sadly, it will be against those who think and want to see you doing work for that precious place of right standing with him. And then in verse 30, when Sarah pronounces, cast out the bondwoman and her son, the point there is that slaves don't receive the inheritance, but true sons receive the inheritance. And so again, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I just want to remind you, you have an inheritance that is coming. I don't know if you stop to think about that often, but wherever you're at on how often you think about it, I, I pray that we would think about it more, that we have a genuine, real inheritance that is coming. And our hope for that is not based on our efforts. It's based in Him. All throughout this, the, these two chapters, Galatians 3, Galatians 4, Paul keeps using son language. He, he's using son language, and it's never sons and daughters. I just, I've asked myself multiple times, like, why is, he, why is he doing this? And I think the reason is because he's driving this point home. Daughters didn't receive inheritance from their fathers. It was passed through the son. The biggest blessing going to the oldest son. And so he's pushing this here, not just to say that males are the only ones that receive this inheritance. No, in fact, if we were to go back to Galatians chapter 3, what we would find is there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female. He's saying it's not that one is more preferred than the other. He's using the point, the illustration all throughout this letter to say that what sons get, all who put their faith and trust in God alone, that they get that. And in fact, as I was thinking about this, and I've heard some people say, well, this even degrades women because there's no mention of daughters. And I don't think that's what's happening. I believe that this actually bestows on them the greatest of all privileges, the, the position of highest in the family. Catch the weight of this, Christian. You have an inheritance that is coming. It is going to be glorious. It is guaranteed and in the, main, in, in, in the meantime, we stay close to the one who's giving it by trusting in his promises. And that leads us then to verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. The crescendo moment, Paul says, in Jesus Christ... You are free. 
In Jesus Christ, you're free. Your mother is not Hagar. Christ has set you free. And you say, I don't feel free. In Christ, you are free. Not free to do whatever your sinful desires want. That's not freedom. That's called slavery. No, we're free from the self-efforting Ishmael tendencies to the God-trusting path of Isaac. And so I just want to remind you this morning, if you are in Christ, this is what you're free. This is just a snippet of the things that you are free from and free to. You are free to suffer well because your hope is not in this world anyway. You are free to live for something bigger than small, finite, created uh, created dreams and ambitions and goals. You are free from the guilt of sin and the condemnation that ushers in with it. You are free from insignificance because in Christ you are significant. You are free from the treadmill of earning that always leaves us tired and have never earned enough. You are free from life without God because you are freely loved and adored and forgiven and he will be with you until the end. You are free from fear of condemnation. You are free to live in the infinite ocean of God's never-ending love. You are free to acknowledge your sin, knowing that Christ in his righteousness covers you. You are free to be joy-filled, knowing that your eternal joy in 10 million years is secure. You're free to pray big prayers because you know the one who hears your prayers. You're free from empty rituals and formalism because you and I get him and he is better than anything else. We are free to forgive because we have first been forgiven. We are free to love God, not for what he can do for us, but because of who he is. We are free from having to impress others because we know the God who loves us. We are free from knowing that it's all up to us, but it is resting and owing in his hands. We are free. Sons of freedom, sons of promise in Christ. Jesus Christ has saved us to be free. Genuine Christians are the freest people in the universe. We come and we go profoundly free people in Christ. And Paul is laboring for the freedom of the Galatian church and for you and I this morning. And you and I add nothing to the status of freedom. We are free children by grace through faith. In fact, you and I will blow it, we will fail, we will miss opportunities, we will struggle, we will weep, but praise be to God, we cannot lose. And so it's never about your achievement. We need to know this because it is a constant temptation to live as though as it is. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, I just want I want to let you know this morning that the Bible is not mainly a story full of rules that you need to keep. Though it contains commands, 
and puts forth people who are faithful for us to imitate, it is not mainly that kind of book. It's primarily a story of what God is doing in spite of human incompetence and sin, of what he's doing to overcome human incompetence and sin. It's not a story of human moral improvement. It's a story about God's eternal promise, bringing freedom and life where there was once only death. The point of all of this is that God has chosen to bless a people, a people who will turn from their ways and trust in his alone. And you can do that. I go back to Isaiah chapter 54, and I think Isaiah chapter 54 is full of so much hope because of what we read in Isaiah 53. You see, Isaiah 54 is a picture of this world that's restored. There's a possibility for restoration. And that comes on the heels of Isaiah 53. It's because there's this suffering servant who's willing to do for this people something that they couldn't do. Something that they didn't deserve. I mean, listen, listen to what we hear, Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs, he, this suffering servant, he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening up for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on this suffering servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And Isaiah 53 will end, literally the verse that comes right before, Rejoice. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By the, his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And then comes Isaiah 54.1. Now rejoice. Rejoice. Not just rejoice because we can try to find hope in a helpless situation. No, rejoice because there's, because there's real hope because of a finished work that this suffering servant will do. And I just want you to know if you showed up this morning, child of Hagar, thinking that you can work your way into good standing with God, the good news and the invitation of Galatians chapter 4, the good news and the invitation of Isaiah 53 and 54 is that you can leave rejoicing, not because you've found out the way that you can work your way into God's good graces, but because you've stopped trying and you've trusted in Jesus alone. You can be made righteous regardless of what you've done. 
And so if you're not a Christian, I just want you to know you can be free today. There's nothing more for you to do than to hear this message of the suffering servants, perfect life, death on a cross, and resurrection on the third day. And if you hear that and you want that, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus alone. Talk to anyone here. It would be our joy to walk with you through this. Christian, do you know the freedom? Or maybe the better question is, do you walk in this freedom? I'm I'm helped to remember that the book of Isaiah doesn't just put before us this hopeful call and the story of the suffering servant. But even in Isaiah chapter 25, there's a, there's a hope-filled vision that God's people are given that I think is meant to be an encouragement to them as they journey from here to glory. And this is what we read in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, <laughs> a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that cast over all the peoples, the veil that's been spread over all the nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from every face, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken.